This week's topic is decision-making, big decisions. Neuroscientists use a wonderful analogy to describe uh, uh, the normal workings of the brain. They use the analogy of a monkey riding on the back of an elephant. And um, so the monkey is pointing here and there, and the elephant is uh, galloping along. I guess that's what elephants do, they gallop. <laughs> I'm deciding that right now. Uh, so elephants gallop, and uh, they turn left or right, but the monkey takes credit and says, well, yeah, I, I, I wanted to go there. But it's really actually most of the time the elephant that is doing the steering uh, and it's only rarely that the monkey has any input. And this is an analogy for the relationship between the unconscious, which is the elephant, and the conscious mind. We like to believe that we're running the show, making our decisions in life, but very often without a, a great deal of observation, awareness, and practice, most of the time the process of the decisions we make are actually being done by processes well below the level of conscious awareness. So the way it works, and the Buddha was uh, amazingly savvy to this, it really, <clears throat> the Western discovery of this was around 1900. William James was the first uh, who really proposed the deep workings of and, and, of course, Freud uh, also uh, developed a very uh, rich theory of the unconscious. But uh, James noticed that most of the time when we react in life, the body has already started to have a reaction before the conscious mind is aware of what we are doing. So um, the process works like this, and I'm going to give you a very, very rough overview of it. Uh, from the moment you're... Uh, born, and pretty much, let's say, starting around two to three months of life, well before you're the, you've acquired any language, any uh, ability to communicate with words, uh, well before you've developed any narrative long-term memories, what you, in terms of conscious memories, you are, however, wiring the midbrain up with a very, very simple mechanism of I like this and I don't like that. So everything you experience uh, that has any uh, noticeable uh, import or influence on your life, you code that in a part of the brain called the amygdala and basically decide, well, from here on I'm either going to gravitate towards this thing or gravitate away from that. So the earliest versions of this is an infant will um, be with its caretaker, and it will, uh, with, from very early on, we have the fusiform gyrus, which reads other people's expressions, glances. It's so fast it can read pupil dilation, it can read body language. And so an infant is monitoring its mother to see how uh, attuned it is, and under which circumstances the mother becomes more um, uh, available, 
and under which circumstances the mother pulls away and loses interest. Uh, very shortly on in life, an infant realizes that when the mother smiles, when she sustains her, her, her uh, gaze, when her body softens, when uh, you know, all different other physiological events occur, the mother is basically indicating, even though she's doing it unconsciously, the mother is indicating that she's attentive, available, she's securely connected. When the infant, though, notices that the mother's pupils are dilating, looking away, the mother's body is contracting backwards, the shoulders are becoming locked, or, you know, a frown on the face, then very often the mother will pull away after that. Perhaps it could be something that the child has done, or it could simply be an external interruption, a phone ringing somebody, uh calling their attention, but that the child very quickly learns to discern what are the signals that, that is associated with abandonment, disappearance of the caretaker. And so later on in life, when you're an adult and you meet somebody and they smile, uh, they, they sustain their glance with you, they uh, soften their body, you unconsciously associate this with those earliest experiences. All of this, again, is being done unconsciously. But you know that that's an indication that the person is attuned to some degree with you and is going to listen, be attentive, going to be present. On the other hand, if you see the telltale signs of somebody pulling away, looking hither and yon, their body stiffening, their pupils dilating or whatever, you might, uh, the eyes, you know, or the face looking away, you will uh, begin to be suspicious and the, your body will create tension that will let you know, hey, we're not too sure about this fellow up there with the weird tattoos and the, with the glasses and all that, or we like the way this very uh, strange-looking Buddhist teacher looks. So uh, all this is giving you unconscious uh, primes. It's called in clinical psychology. You're being primed to like or dislike. Now, it's not just facial expressions and behaviors that we begin to use as primers. We also use all different kinds of situations, events, people, places, things. So, for example, uh, to use some uh, from my own life, because, uh, hey, I know that pretty well. So, um, my, uh, for most of my life, I've had a, a very strong visceral dislike of sailing boats <laughs> and uh, skiing and uh, soup. I really don't like soup that much. <laughs> Uh, and uh, my conscious mind, and this is very important to note, the conscious mind comes up with justifications for these negative associations, as it does for positive associations. So I came up with all these stories, you know, skiing is for rich people, uh, a terrible, stupid sport where you glide into trees and lose your life and and it, it, it's uh, meaningless. And sailboats are 
purposely risking your life and 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 water and whatever. I, I'm sure I had a lot of other reasons. And then also soup, not a real food, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but when I, towards the end of my mom's life, when we were hanging out a lot, well before, well, at one period when I was getting to know her much closer and spending a lot more time with her when she'd become ill, uh, she told me stories of very early childhood where it was very clear that uh, my parents used once had a terrible argument and my dad threw a huge bowl of soup across the table which exploded against the wall. Uh, whenever my dad would drag my mom and me to go on the sailing boat he made, I would cry because uh, he'd make me, he wouldn't allow me to bring my little child toys. And uh, uh, there was some... Oh, skiing, I just hated. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> no, but he used to drag me to do that, too. So, um, uh, and they were Russian, and they were always... You know, the funny thing is, my dad really couldn't afford any of these things, the skiing or the boats. They were immigrants, not particularly well, but they really so wanted to be American, and they always chased after the trappings of success. Uh, and so it was very thrilling for them when I became a Buddhist teacher. Um, but anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, so, but anyway, I hated it, but they were, they would force me to do it because it was like associated with the trappings of becoming an American. So actually all the reasons I came up for why sailboats, soup, and uh, uh, skiing were bad was just simply justifications that my left hemisphere came up, the monkey came up to justify what the elephant had decided from childhood, which were these early associations of negative interpersonal experiences that I no longer recalled uh, had deeply uh, tagged all those things as bad, stay away from them. So when I encountered them again, I would come up with you know, reasons to justify my aversion. We do this all the time. If you want to read about it, uh, there's a terrific book by the NYU neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux, L-E-D-O-U-X, called The Emotional Brain. And it talks about all these different examples of how we unconsciously tag things and then go back retroactively and try to justify why we believe these things are bad. Um, we always gravitate towards things we've seen before because that suggests safety to us. So if you show somebody in the blink, a very blink, uh, subconsciously quick, uh, fast shot of somebody's face that they can't consciously register, but they unconsciously register it, and then you show them six photographs, they will always prefer the person whose face they've seen before. Even though they'll, when you ask them why, they'll come up with some ridiculous reason. Well, I just like the, the, the sweater they're wearing, etc. Um, now, the same thing works for positive associations. I, uh, uh, I, my first really successful interpersonal experiences as a, as a young kid uh, were with the other druggies uh, I, even before I used drugs, people just assumed I was a druggie, and so they didn't want anything to do with me. So when I finally encountered some other druggies, and they were they they sort of accepted me 
and then they gave me some pot to smoke, I associated pot with happiness, togetherness, you know, being connected with other people. The problem is I've become a par- paranoid wreck 40 minutes later. So uh, from that point on, throughout, uh, for the next 15 years of my life, I would, whenever somebody would offer me pot, I'd go, well, yes, thank you very much. And then 40 minutes later, I'd be, damn it! You know, I'm only good... I'm only good for watching Mary Tyler Moore reruns now. Um, you know, I'm a block away from home and I'm too paranoid to walk it. Uh, so, um, but still, we, I made that positive association. So we can make positive associations. This is why when people are stressed, by the way, they eat comfort food. Because comfort food is generally the food that we ate when we were children you know, uh, macaroni and cheese, uh, you know, whatever, Nutella, you know. And when we're under stress, we tend to lose all conscious override altogether, and then we totally revert to what the Buddha called Vedana, unconscious associations. We let that drive the show entirely. Fortunately for us, we do have the ability to consciously override. Our monkeys are not completely hopeless. If they see the elephant is about to steer them off of the cliff, they can grab hold of the uh, elephant's ears. And <laughs> I'm going too far with this analogy, but they stop. This is terrible. And so we have actually, uh, after your urges go from uh, the amygdala through the cingulate, they actually pass through a region called the orbital frontal, which you can override, and that will tell you, well, this is a bad idea, what we're about to do. The example I used, I think, yesterday was, uh, you know, you have a roommate, uh, and they leave the towel on the floor of the bathroom, and that kind of irritates you, and so you might think of kicking them in the shins, or spiking their soy milk. I don't know what you Why would you do that? I have no idea why you do that. That's just terrible. But anyway, so, so you might not have any experience with that, so you won't have any Vedana, uh, or you might even have positive Vedana at the idea of getting even uh, or killing your roommate. Hopefully you're not sociopathic, but... Um, You'll run that idea past your orbital frontal if you're not under too much stress, and your orbital frontal region will say, no, that's a terrible idea. Then I have to dispose of the body. I have to find a new roommate. It's difficult to pay the rent. Plus all those precepts, the things that they talk about in my Buddhist class. It's a mess. So I won't do that. So we do have some conscious override. Now, the important thing to note about this is that a lot of times these underlying unconscious associations, what some people call intuition, gut feelings, they can be very, 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 very wrong. So bear that in mind. In this country, people love to put out those little Facebook memes, you know, the images that come up, they're big squares, they have a flower. They have a flower and, and a butterfly, and then in some very beautiful handwritten font, follow your bliss wherever your bliss wants. <laughs> be who you want to be, just follow your gut. 
and let your gut lead you where your bliss... Whatever, I can't even do that. <laughs> but uh, as we'll see, as we've seen, actually, that is not the way to make decisions. Um, uh, as I was saying, uh, for every person who met somebody, fell in love, two days later went to Las Vegas to get married, and then four days later had it annulled, Yes, I'm talking about Britney Spears. Um, no, but that was somebody following their gut. That was somebody following their intuition. Nobody said to them, hey, this is a great idea. It wasn't even a working of their rational mind. It was simply they were following their gut. They were following their craving. So we loved, we loved the idea that we can somehow simplify our decision-making process by simply following these underlying uh, core Vedana, you know, uh, intuition. But actually, the Buddha, in fact, uh, urged people not to use that as their process. So what happens in life is um, very often big decisions, important events, big opportunities, they always involve some risk. Whenever we're doing something that could be an opportunity, whenever somebody presents us with, for instance, a new job possibility, leaving our old job, or moving to an exciting new place, California, where everyone is happy and beautiful, and, and everybody makes a lot of money, they all have a startup, and <laughs> I'm a savvy New Yorker, I could go there and clean up because they're slower than me. <laughs> so, every new opportunity in life, there's always going to be uh, risks. And so you will always trigger two mechanisms, the positive and the negative, Vedana. The positive, you know, opportunity, this could be really good for me, this could be towards my advantage, this could be the, finally, I could uh, have my day in the sun, uh, uh, never suffer again, and then there's also the risk part it will trigger. It will trigger, oh no, I won't know anybody, what if I can't find that magical job, what if uh, the, you know, there's an earthquake there, I don't know. But anyway, there's leaving everything we know going into the unknown is risky. And so we will always trigger with every opportunity in life and every big decision, we will always have both positive underlying feelings, negative underlying feelings, and what will happen is your left hemisphere will go nuts trying to figure out which to go with. That's when we wind up with the court case in the mind, with the two lawyers arguing it out in the middle of the night, 4 a.m., should I move, should I not move, should I move, should I... We should move, it's a great idea, somebody said every day is beautiful out there. <coughs> no. <laughs> I finally have got some friends here, I found, you know, a Buddhist community, uh, you know, I, I don't know anybody there. This is, it's a terrible idea. No! And so back and forth they go. And what happens is we, the brain looks for 
a compelling enough reason to either placate all of the fear and make it go away, or get rid of, override all of the opportunity, craving, you know, desire part of the equation. Unfortunately, the underlying unconscious reactions do not follow logic or language. They simply know that two images have been put in front of them, moving or staying, and they're reacting to that. They react to very, very simple, single impulses, but we, because we are living in the linguistic left hemisphere of the brain, we tend to believe that if we come up with a perfect logical reason, if we just can think it all through and come up with every negative possibility that could possibly happen so that we could prepare ourselves, that that will placate the underlying stressed, tight, uh, moving back and forth between craving for change and fear of change. Back and forth they go. And the attempt to logic, come up with a reason, come up with a compelling line of, of, uh, of arguments to make all this go away will never work. Somebody can offer you the perfect business opportunity, investment, whatever, and if you try to uh, logic it out, in a way that will make this go away, it will never, ever work. So part of the process of making the decisions is actually holding fear, holding desire, allowing them to arise, being with them, but not allowing them to determine what we do. The big decisions in life should not be determined by the elephant, although they're lovable creatures. Don't get me wrong. I love elephants. But we don't want these things or trying to get rid of feelings, intuitions, either. Because that will keep you up at night. That will keep you locked in that inner courtroom case that keeps you going forever. And if you simply go with your gut, you're simply throwing the dice and you're basically basing a huge decision in your life on very early associations that you've made in completely different instances that have nothing to do with your big decision. So both approaches are not really going to help. So the first way we hold the fear is by simply opening to it, locating it. In most cases, if it's a big opportunity or change, it's going to be in the stomach, or it's going to be here in the chest, or maybe in the throat. So we open to this area of the body, and we just hold the image of, okay, moving, what does that bring up, or quitting my job, what does that bring up? Feel the fear arising, feel the excitedness, the wanting to do it arising, and we just hold it, and we say, it's okay, you're allowed to be there, I'm allowed to have these reactions, I'm allowed to go into a new city or change in my life, I'm allowed to bring my fear with me. I don't have to get rid of my fear. I can, if I stay put, I don't have to get rid of my excitedness and my desire for change. I can be with that too. 
when we hold it, when we create a safe container where we're not trying to push it away, argue with it, live up in our minds, live up in the thought realm, when we're embodied, embodied, we can actually create enough space. And then we, what we can do over time is we can use meta. I'll be there. I'll take care of you. It'll be all right. I won't abandon you. This is not forever. We can change our minds. This is something we're going to explore. And we can hold it. The longer we hold it and the more we greet it with a calm breath and meta, reassuring, the words really don't do the trick. It's the kind quality of mind that will relax, basically, the underlying feelings. And then, eventually, they begin to subside enough that they won't be driving or pushing us back and forward, back and forward. It's also useful, number two, first is holding the fear and... uh, holding the excited, the activated state in the body. The second is to really uh, investigate the glow that the craving mind can invest in things. You know, before you have one of these things, you know, it fucking glows. You look at it in the the window, oh, fuck, look at that thing, that's fucking beautiful. (laughs) Holy shit. If I had one of those things, I would never, ever have to suffer again. I'd be completely uh, attuned. I would know what's going on everywhere all the time. My life would be so much better. This is the thing I've been waiting for. And then you get it, and you're like, oh, it's one of these things. Oh, okay. And the glow's going away. It's craving that gives the glow to things, not the things themselves. Craving makes things glow. Desire makes things seem special. When you're not in a relationship, you want to be in a relationship, you know, the person you're on the date with who's kind of nice looks amazing. They're glowing with possibility. But then three months later, you're like, oh, it's one of those people. (laughs) Well, I'm humoring myself. All right. Uh, uh, So anyway. Craving makes things glow, and it's important to begin to really peel away just all the stuff we add in to decisions. Oh, if I move to San Francisco, I'll never have to worry about work. Everybody makes money. You know, I'm sure I'll find a nice place by the bay. All that shit we don't know. The only thing we know for sure if we move to San Francisco is we won't be fucking in a New York winter again, but that's it. (laughs) That's the only thing we know, is simply moving to another city. Everybody, when they hate their job, immediately goes into the... And understandably, but they go, fuck this, I'm going to get a degree. What are you going to get a degree? I don't know, I'm going to get a degree. I know, I'm just tired of this shit, tired of these people I'm working with, I'm going to get a degree, and a degree because I want to do the degree. And that's fine. Get a degree. That's beautiful. But when we add on to the degree, oh, I'll, this means I'll always have, get to do the thing I love. I'll never have to struggle. I'll never be with difficult people again where I work. Good fucking luck. And none of that comes along with a degree. What comes along with a degree, you get to spend a couple of years studying stuff that you like, and then you wind up $100,000 in the hole. (laughs) 
You can do that. That's great. I, I love that. But I'm just saying, don't mistake this myth. <laughs> don't mistake the, the, you know, we add on these payoffs. Oh, it'll be so great. I'll get that, that degree in uh, Reiki, and that'll be it. Um, so, <laughs> so, so trim that away. Then what we can do is we can also trim away the drama that we add on, because the more drama we add on, the more uh, Vedana that gets kicked up. So, you know, very often when we want to leave our job to do something else, then but the fact we might have to take a pay cut, or we might have to do live somewhere that's not as fun, or whatever, we might dramatize it. Oh, no. Oh, no. And, and during these times, it's really helpful to reflect on the Buddha. Uh, the Buddha lived in a castle. He saw the fact that everybody gets to grow old, sick, die. We all have frustrations. And he saw that all of the shit of the castle wasn't going to help him at all. And he said, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm going to go. I'm going to search for happiness and live as basically a mendicant, somebody who... Uh, just lives off of the donations of other people. And so that would have been pr pretty fucking scary, right? I mean, that's a scary thing to do. If you don't remind yourself that the Buddha said that the only things we really need to be happy outside of our spiritual practice, the only things we really need is enough food, enough shelter to keep us warm, enough clothes to keep us warm, and medicine to... Uh, you know, uh, keep us uh, healthy. And we probably don't even need the clothes as much as we wear them, but nobody wants to see me giving these talks naked. So uh, I'm better off with all four. You're all young. You can do with three out of four. That's not so bad. All right. So... Uh, so bear that in mind. That can make a lot of these decisions seem much less important. There's much less on the line. Reflecting <coughs> on the impermanence, how uh, in the past, how big decisions that we feared earlier in life passed very quickly or weren't the big solves or disasters that we thought they might be. These are good reflections. Now, when it... Also, of course... Uh, it's really important to have people in your life that are what the Buddha called Kalyanamita, which means not people who agree with everything, who say yes to everything, nor people who are just naysayers who always go with a safe solution. You know, in my case, it was my mother. Uh, what we need is somebody who is both enthusiastic but willing at the same time to tell us when we have a shitty idea and be willing to burst the bubble. We need those people. We need those wise spiritual people to be in our life, to be willing to say, yeah, this is not a good idea. Running them, running, people use other people as emotion regulation tools. If we don't have that available, we can very easily become over-fearful or over-enthusiastic in the decision-making processes. So, if we've done all the steps I've told you so far, we've, um, we've uh, 
held the fear and the excitation and given it a safe container. We've uh, stripped away the unrealistic promises that change, change might bring in our life. We've run it by people, and we've also stripped away the, uh, the, all the stories of all the things we need to have in our life to be happy. No, we don't all need a condo or whatever. So what then is left is two very, very useful tools that I find. The first is reflecting over the course of our lives, looking back up until maybe the past last year. When you review your life, what are the choices or actions that you feel the greatest sense of esteem and worthiness from? Learn from your own life. Don't learn from other people's lives. For some people, the, the thing that brought them the most sense of worthiness would be connecting with other people, doing service, being helpful, changing other people's lives positively. And so those people should make a decision in line with that. What brings them closer to that? Other people, though, are most proud of the times where they were creative, self-expressive, took a risk and stood up on a stage or uh, painted a painting or wrote a book or did something that allowed their voice to be heard by others. And so those people should not do the service, nor should the people who enjoyed the service try to do the creative. We have to find from our own lives, be our own teachers, in terms of what brings us the greatest sense of inner worthiness inner esteem. Don't, you know, follow what I do, or as the Buddha said, don't believe what people tell you. See for yourself in your own reflections on your own life what was at the time, like Jesse, you spent a year kicking around in Thailand while the rest of us were in a miserable fucking winter. <laughs> Bastard. He spent a year. I still want to buy the book to figure out how the fuck he did it. The guy, how he does these things. He spent a year just wandering around Southeast Asia. Fucking beautiful. Right? I bet when you look back now, you, look, you feel better about that than a lot of other things, a lot of other choices. So that's a decision we bear in mind. Now, the other approach <coughs> is um, get a journal. Always a good idea to have a journal. And then write out every compelling reason to do it one morning without any editing at all. Just write it all out. Just write out every good reason to, to move to Las Vegas with that new girl or guy you met to get married and, 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 and roll out your 401k and buy a place with somebody you don't know that well. and Just write it all out. And then wait a couple of days and then write out all the reasons why that's a terrible idea. And then wait a week. Go back and rather than looking at the reasons, don't look at the reasons, you already know that. Look at the quality of voice that's justifying the decision versus telling you not to do it one of those voices is going to be a better friend. One of them is going to be more compassionate, 
One of them is going to be more on your side. One voice might say, you deserve to be happy, so stay, or you deserve to be happy, so leave. Go with that voice. Don't go with the voices that come up with the most scary reasons. Because if you think hard enough, you can always think of scary reasons to do something and not to do something. Just look at the emotional quality behind each of those voices and ask, which of those voices is a better friend of mine? Which voice do I want to empower? The voice that wants to explore or the voice that wants to stay put and work harder at something? They're both, you know, either one could be legitimate, but you have to yourself determine that. So I thank you for listening. I hope that there was something worthwhile in there for your reflection. And I'll turn off this.